Welcome to the Art Informant. My name is Isabel Amber and I'll be your host. I have been working and breathing Islamic and Indian art history for more than a decade. How do you breathe art history, you ask? Listen to this podcast to find out. In today's episode, I welcome Barty Lalwani, art critic and perfume maker and Dr. Nicholas Roth, visual librarian at Harvard, gardener and historian of plant knowledge in India. Barty and Nicholas have collaborated on an online exhibition, Barge Hind, The Garden of India, a unique project combining art history and perfume making to recreate smells of Rajput and Mughal paintings. In the episode, they talk about the creation of the exhibition, smells, shared visual cultures, the accessibility of art history to all, and much more. As always, the link to the exhibition and more information are available below the episode. Party Lalwani and Nicola Roth, welcome to the Art Informant. I am absolutely delighted to have you both on the podcast today to discuss your work, because you do so many things at the same time, uh, but also to discuss a fantastic project that you have built together. Um, yeah, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. I struggle to write a question because first, I'm, usually there is only one uh, guest on the podcast, sometimes two, but it's quite rare. And also I struggle because, as I said, you you do many things. You have many um you have many job titles i would say so barty you are an art critic perfumer and nick you are an historian gardener uh so i'm not really sure where to start so i'll leave it up to you entirely with a very simple question so, hi who are you barty ladies first do you want to start i i am an art critic i still consider myself an art critic even though i don't really write um criticism about contemporary art these days um but i you, i graduated as an artist i have a ba in fine art and uh an ma in contemporary art a few years later so um i really cut my teeth on art criticism uh by writing about contemporary southeast asian art when i was actually living in the region and traveling around and this was a time when um, this was between 2008 and 2017, where I um, I think it was such a fertile ground. Um, there wasn't much being covered about this region. And it was through the art that I was actually learning about uh, the politics, the history, the pre-colonial history, um, uh, the culture, religion uh, of an entire region. Uh, by trying to understand what the artists were saying and how they were saying it. And, you know, till today, that is actually, even in reading art historical paintings, uh, that is very much my question. What is the artist saying? How are they saying it? And so uh, about 20, it was 2017 when I decided I wanted to... Um, exit the art world because the only way forward was, you know, you either become an academic or you become a curator and there are really no uh, options for an independent critic. Uh, no funding, no grants. Um, the buzzword at the time was, you know, to do research archives, marginalized archives. Um, and that buzzword has changed since then. It's, you know, it's moved to being like Indian Ocean Research and Anthropocene. And now it's like sensorial something, something. <laughs> Um, but what I wanted to do around at the end of 2017 was to figure out a way to broaden my horizons, to use my mind in a very different way, and to build a practice that was all my own. So I I was kind of tired of um, writing about other people's practices, and I really wanted to build something that was mine. Um, and so this is the time when I actually um, did a lot of research um, uh, and field trips uh, into to you know to learn more about uh, flavor and then fragrance. And so in my research, I found that a lot of chefs were talking about chefs and perfumers were talking about using the same 
um, high-grade um, botanical extracts. So we're not talking about essential oil, but we're talking about absolutes. We're talking about resins or resinoids. Um, that they were using the same ingredients in perfumery and in food flavoring. Um, and I thought that was quite intriguing. So um, that is kind of how I became a perfumer. <laughs> I established a perfumery practice in 2018. And it is at the same time that I was looking at all of these art history paintings in the digitized collection of the Met, which is when I found, um, you know, th these folios that actually inspired me. And there was so much uh, scent being communicated through flowers mm -hmm. and plants and fruits. And I thought, well, if only I could find a historian who could identify those flowers and plants for me, then we have a museum show. And I think I found uh, Nicholas's work very randomly via Twitter um, in 2020 and then collaborated with him between 2021 and 2022 to put this project Bage Hymns together. And I look back now and I think, my God, how lucky. Yeah. And of course, we're, gonna, we're going to talk about that uh, a lot more in a minute. Uh, but yeah, Nick, do you want to do the same? Hi, who are you? Um, so I... I did my undergraduate already in a joint concentration, as Harvard called it, a double major, essentially, in South Asian studies and Middle Eastern studies. The, it was, it's called Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Mm -hmm. um, so I started out primarily with an interest in um, in the languages of the region. So I, in you know, in undergrad, I started with Urdu and, and Hindi and Arabic, and then and then I went on to grad school in South Asian studies and PhD program in South Asian studies, um, where, you know, I added Persian and Sanskrit. How many languages do you speak? People always say, oh, speak. I'm like, well, most of these, most of these are research languages, right? So I, I, I read particular genres in a lot more languages than, than I can commute, than I can communicate with orally. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say I speak a, a scant handful, maybe. <laughs> I can read a couple more. Um, wow, that's already a lot. But so, you know, I sort of started out with a with an interest in, in the sort of literary history. Um, and there was always, you know, I've always been interested in art, but, you know, I didn't go into an art history program. Um, and I didn't go into a history department either. I went into an area studies department because, um, you know, I wanted to work with primary resource materials and, you know, that wanted that to really be the focus of what I was, what I was doing. So I did my, I did my PhD in South Asian studies working, you know, with Persian and Sanskrit and, and Hindi and Urdu. But I also have this long-standing, lifelong interest in horticulture. Um, you know, it's always sort of my, been my biggest passion outside of, originally outside of my academic interests. So, you know, in any sort of academic field sooner or later, I, you know, I have this urge to pull them together. Yeah. So maybe two years into grad school, you know, as I was, you know, really getting to a point of getting more and more comfortable reading primary materials and start doing sort of one on reading stuff one on one with my professors, you know, I started sort of looking like what, what materials beyond the sort of standard religious and, um, and philosophical, uh, text that they're making us read that are sort of part of the curriculum uh, is there that might speak to these other realms of, of sort of more everyday human life and material culture yeah. that I'm just I just happen to be interested in um, so I started sort of you know tracing essentially the the history and contours of writing on gardens and and horticulture and agriculture in these various literary traditions that I was studying um, and just because I was interested in and quickly found that no one, that there were sort of a few, there was enough of a record that it was relatively easy to find out that these texts exist or existed. Mm -hmm. um, and there certainly were genres of writing about these things that were substantial enough that clearly it was of some importance and had some sort of cultural significance. But there had been very little attention paid to it um, in a in a sort of contemporary academic context and it had been very sort of unsystematic um in the sense that where it had been studied um it had often sort of been studied at face value without really questioning like you know what its relation to real life practice is and where it fits into um into the time period that's where my dissertation project ended up starting out on 
my dissertation project ended up the starting idea for it ended up being technical writing on on gardens horticulture farming in pre-colonial south asia um sort of tracing the history of it and the the various bodies of work that there were in the various languages and and how they related to each other and so on uh and then expanded from there um with that as the as the sort of base to look at how gardens and knowledge about gardens um you know having stuff to say about gardens and gardening how that fit into the larger intellectual landscape what it meant for intellectuals or for yeah. and you know that's that's sort of the gist of what the dissertation project ended up, up being about but it is also this sort of project where um it very often comes up against i think the sort of contemporary academic obligation to ha- always have a uh, an an ultimate so what <laughs> and you know yes i i do make the argument that a lot of this did have to do with sort of performing social status and 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 sophistication and so on but there there's also sort of a limit to that i mean clearly i am interest interested in the subject matter and i think that that was very often true for my historical subject as well it mattered because it's something people cared about and something that was part of people's lives um and that has at times made the subject matter difficult in a contemporary academic context where the validity of something as a research subject if you cannot ultimately make it about power mm-hmm. in some form in a in a form that 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 sort of you know um large scale history can make sense of you know it's often sort of questioned yes it's such an interesting thought i i i encountered the same issue with my research topic so and especially when it comes to gardening and flowers and you know things that are considered like just pretty and and like leisurely it's less mm-hmm. it's regarded as less important in the grand scheme of things however as you mentioned it mattered at some point it still matters exactly. today but you know it matters for the people who wrote the text that you're working on so it is a piece of the larger puzzle that is history so yeah it's very exactly and then you know because i had this background and this also sort of being what i do outside of my research you know that obviously very much informed my approach to it because that you know from the get go felt like the thing that i could add the thing that i saw missing in the very little work that there was to begin with because that that tended to take things very much at face value or in fewer cases sort of to see it as completely theoretical uh and not and sidestepped its relation to real life practice at all and that was for me that was sort of the the bit that i could fill in yeah. because i had this practical experience because i actually knew what the plants were or you know if, even if i didn't know off the bat could could figure it out and mm-hmm. and so on and and that interestingly enough is the thing it's the thing that a lot of people get really really excited about the stuff the thing that often really speaks to people especially you know outside of an academic context that really yeah. makes it come alive which i'm so happy about um but it's also the part that a certain subset of of fellow academics has been is really resistant to um this is all which because... is sort of the it there's sort of this like how you know how how can you tie this to a how dare you tie this to a practice that you didn't learn in a university classroom is really is is really sort of the the undercurrent that i that i often get like this is this is inf- this, you're bringing in a skill set here or a set of information that is not verifiable to me because it's it doesn't come you know it doesn't come exclusively out of university education yeah it's like the power dynamic of academia and university everything that you bring needs to be verified by someone else who is in a, in a higher position than you and that's the frustrating part but personally i feel like your research is very interesting because the of what you bring from outside of academia um and i'm a bit jealous of your of that <laughs> because my research my my phd was on flower painting uh, in india and in iran and i didn't have a real knowledge i had a little bit of knowledge about flowers before but you know when i started like gathering my corpus i was like okay well <laughs> now i need to identify those flowers <laughs> as much as i can but i didn't have that knowledge so what i did is like go in like you know flower catalogs <laughs> and and um and obviously uh, herbaria and florilegia and like uh, taught myself about it 
which is a bit shaky to say the least. Uh, <laughs> the point is, it's more, that... it's more than many do. <laughs> yeah, first of all, what I realize is it's more than many do because uh, the misidentification of so many flower species. And I'm not saying that I'm 100% right because I'm clearly not, but at least I made the effort. But that's the interesting part is like you you bring knowledge from outside of the classroom, I would say, and that what makes your research interesting and 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 more complete as well. So yeah, so it's it's a weird resistance. Uh, to Nicholas's point, um, you know the the very um ideas that he is bringing, the the strengths of his ideas that uh, I could like a certain type of. Uh, academic tends to discredit other very strengths that I have uh, mined in this project because um, I don't know gardens and I don't know flowers and I'm not so well versed with the natural world. Uh, but within perfumery itself, I have to be very specific. Which rose am I using? You know, um, is there a difference between rose essential oil and rose auto, and then which rose is which? Um, which jasmine, you know, extract you. So I have to be very, very specific. So I needed to find somebody, somebody um, to I look at a painting, identify the season, the time of day, the type of soil. Uh, what what variety of jasmine is that growing there? Which one should I use? Which extract should I use? The jasmine sambac or the jasmine grandiflorum? Both have a very different tone and temperature so using one over the other it would just change the meaning and experience of uh of the experience of that painting that i'm trying to translate so uh, there are very powerful ideas here very potent ideas that we have explored and we i i think that we've just scratched because yeah. in, a, in a sense that um you know what you just described so so succinctly and with, with such apt examples that that also, you know, that also came up for me very early on when I started sort of branching out into the subject matter and that sort of becoming my research focus with the, even with the literature that was sort of initially presented to me when I was learning this, you know, rich jasmine that, that comes up even in poetry and literary texts and religious texts even um, that are not ostensibly about gardens or gardening and so on, because these are just cultural reference and, and the more skilled the writers are um, were in most cases the more precise these references are, and I, um, you know, I, I found this very early on in in sort of sun, you know, in in, in Sanskrit we, class we would read things that, and as soon as they got a little bit more literary, you know, there were lots of flowers all over the place, um, but as we were translating them, it would just be you know the glossaries or the the sort of dictionaries we were using. Um, would just it would just be like lotus 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 and i'm like these are diff i based on the literary conceits that are created here these are not all just lotuses and of course they were not they were a whole slate of different types of water lilies um that you know have different flower colors that bloom at different times and and so on and the that's why they were being used because you know one blooms at night and has white flowers so that allowed for different poetic conceits than one that is blue and blooms during the day. Yeah. But, you know, the, the translating practices that, you know, that have been established for well over a hundred years or that continue to be passed on to students and to new scholars being trained just completely flatten those things out. And also, you know, the, the day blooming flowers are different from the night blooming flowers. There's different tone and temperature. In um, and now identifying flowers in a painting was one thing, right? That is just one aspect. I don't know how these flowers actually smell. I am encountering these flowers through their extracts. So I don't actually know what a narcissist smells like. I've never seen a daffodil in my life. So now the historian has to not just identify these uh, plants and flowers for me. He also has to have key smell vocabulary to explain to me what they smell like. Okay, so let's let's actually focus on Bahe Hind. First thing first, what is it? What is Bahe Hind? Um, so I had this um, idea, as I said earlier, in 2018 when I uh, began my research in perfumery and flavor. Um, and looking at these folios, I thought it very odd that till now, 
you know, like institutions have not presented this knowledge with different forms of knowledge, the knowledge of fragrance, for example, the experience of it. Um, then there was also the, the, the institutional critique side of the idea where I thought, you know, all of these, um, the bulk of the art history is outside of South Asia, right? So how do I access it? Oh, if I go to the Met, I still cannot, you know, if I get the visa, <laughs> if I get the visa, get on a plane, afford a trip to New York, go to the Met, I still cannot see this folio because it is not on view. So it is actually not even accessible to anybody at all. Um, okay, so if our experience of these, um, or rather our view and engagement with these paintings is always going to be virtual, it's always going to be on a computer screen at the end of the day copyright protected images, uh, some of which you can't even zoom into because there are some copyright restrictions, which is like super weird um, and super villainous, frankly, like whatever. Um, you know, I, I just thought, okay, is there a way to bring the experience of these paintings out? Can they, They're obviously sensorially rich. They're obviously the artists are communicating, like breathlessly communicating scent and flavor through the depiction of fruits and fruiting trees, you know, that the plums are just shown like ripe and juicy and like just ready to drop. Um, and like there's so many depictions of saffron crocus and roses and poppies and mangoes. My God, how many mango trees have I seen and lusted after in mainly Rajput paintings and the banana trees and the banana buds? Okay. How do we experience them? Is there a lyrical olfactory way to, to draw their experience out? Is there a way to democratize this, this experience of this knowledge of this art history? I could translate these folios into an edible perfume and into a perfume. Um, and of course, a lot has been explored in terms of not even a lot, actually, just like very moderately. I know of Catherine Schofield, who has uh, really looked into you know the, the pairing of these these ragas with the ragamala with the imagery and this there's at least an exploration of classical hindustani music but when it comes to scent nothing i asked the historian kavita singh i ran the idea by her uh, back in 2018 and the only person she kept referring me to was emma flat and i looked up the book the the scent upon a summer breeze which is such a beautiful like really beautiful academically dense essays, but beautiful. Um, I looked up Emma Flatt's essay and I thought, oh, you know, this is interesting, but really the, she is really talking about a perfumery text in the Deccani court, the, the processes in which they went about layering scent upon scent upon scent. So there's the mouth freshener, there's the rose water on the scented linens, there's the way that your palaces, your palace walls are scented. And so one of those recipes, if I recall even correctly, maybe like I'm like half correct and even recalling it was uh, talked about, you know, beat a lump of ambergris with some musk pods, put in some mango paste, put in some rose water, spread it on your palace walls. And I thought, well, what use is that? Um, and like, these are really expensive, ethically prohibitive materials. Um, I really like kind of operate like a drug dealer half the time when it comes <laughs> to like sorting stuff. So, you know, it's illegal to possess, possess ambergris, but I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who, uh, from whom I bought ambergris, about five grams of ambergris. Um, and it was like $27 per gram. Wow. And these things are talking about lumps, lumps. <laughs> yeah. And then musk pods, you know, I never even bothered. I never even bothered looking for musk pods, although they are available. You can get them from are they? I thought they would be forbidden. I didn't know ambergris was illegal. I don't know why ambergris is illegal, but musk pod, I would assume they are. But no, okay. Isabel, like I said, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. So the thing is, do I really want to pursue this rabbit hole? <laughs> do I really want to do this? And how does the audience then access this? Because then the price goes up, right? Like how do I how do I make this maybe this kind of you know academic research uh makes sense within a university experiment? Well, but then then it's also you know, the way, and this is Emma Flatt's work in this case, for instance, is, is what I actually like about it is that it it does sort of record and discuss 
what the primary materials say without being so obsessed with the so what. I mean, she does obviously talk about in in her um, in her larger, more recent book. She talks a lot about how these kind of things fit into courtly um, etiquette and and how that in terms relates to relates to the relationships that maintain power. And so, so she gets to the so what of state power, obviously, and of you know inserting yourself into state yes. power. But but she compared to a lot of people, she mm-hmm. she she can dwell on the the obvious pleasure being taken in in the material culture and in the practice but um you know she's not experimenting with the materials right like that's not even i don't think that's even part of it because you know it's enough for what she's doing to to record what the text is saying without without really having yeah. to investigate its um its relationship to to real material practice um let alone through personal experimentation right um so you're already on a you're already in a sense on a different trajectory and and a different more more interactive approach um a more literal like attempt to access the experience by even by even thinking through ways of, of materializing this stuff yeah, and how does one partake the idea, the theoretical idea of lushness, abundance, plentitude, pleasure, joy, uh, luxury? What is this idea of luxury? A lot of these paintings that I have seen, um, you know, simple things, like the kind of, I'm in awe of some of these paintings. I, and also, I don't quite realize until I see all of these lush banana trees, but in Rajput paintings, right? Like and I'm like, hang on, Rajasthan, that desert, that that's where these banana trees are growing. <laughs> you know, how can that be? And so I have more questions about, well, what's the microclimate like in these places? How is it possible that they that there's this kind of lush aquatic bowers and ponds and forests? Uh, and are these like imagined scenarios? Are these like imagined gardens being depicted? Or are these real trees that were really growing at that time and that the climate has changed so much, that our environment has changed so much that we don't even uh, we don't even understand the idea of a green space anymore. So I grew up in a completely urban environment, like concrete, like Lagos is the commercial center of Nigeria. There are no... Mm-hmm kind of, you know, uh, green spaces and parks and openness as such that just wasn't. Um, And so I used these paintings to try to imagine a better, a better future, a better environment. Um, I'm an optimist. I'm a big fan of Star Trek. And I love the fact that, you know, at some point we will reach, we, we will reach a stage um, where we've resolved all our problems and ecological catastrophes are not a given. Um, and so this question of, well, how do you look at the past, right? At this kind of abundant world depicted in the past in order to help you imagine a better future? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, that, that is such a good point about Rajput painting. And uh, I've never thought about it, actually. Uh, so thank you for that you know, in genres like these sort of courtly scenes and ragamalas and things like that, what what it really focuses on is these sort of, you know, peri-urban, very, 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 um, you know, intensively cultivated and manipulated landscape. The representations might be idealized, but they're not fictitious by any means. I mean, you know, we... Uh, we've looked at a lot of paintings specifically from Mevar, from, you know, from um, the princely state center in Udaipur. The reason, you know, we ended up there so much is in part because Udaipur itself as a city and, you know, it's a, it's a consciously, a city that was consciously founded in the 16th century and that has a very constructed urban landscape. It was founded around a mm-hmm. sort of ever expanding series of man-made lakes um and the entire city essentially revolves around this way of manipulating the landscape to harness the water in the seasonally very dry landscape and to create that lushness so yes there are plenty of banana trees there are lotuses on the lake there are these lush gardens all over but it's because you know there was a conscious a very elaborate conscious choice made to like okay this is the topography that will allow us to create the the water management systems that in turn will create this 
you know, it's not quite an oasis because the surrounding landscape is not fully a desert. It's more, you know, seasonally dry scrubland slash like dry yeah. forest. Um, un unlike in, in parts of Rajasthan further west, um, it's it's not a, naturally a desert to begin with. It, um, but, you know, but what's really clearly such a cultural focus is the the transformation of that landscape into something that sort of approximates the you know the literary ideal of of sanskrit and persian literature uh of of a of a sort of cultivated garden of when and you know these lush groves and so on and it's not a fantasy but it it is a focus on a on a sort of man-made implicitly man-made landscape yeah so how did you operate the iconographic selection of the exhibition? How did you choose the paintings? It was sort of a, a, joint, a joint back and forth. There was the obviously the one that, that had originally inspired Parthi. And then, um, and then we sort of developed the idea of structuring it around particularly culturally meaningful botanical slash olfactin. So that sort of started out the selection. Uh, so I picked a few flowers, and Harthi had, you know, the very the very apt observation that that fireworks and are something that's very frequently represented in these garden paintings as well, and wanted to have at least one central painting that that featured that. So you know, we picked one of those, uh, and then I I really wanted to show how a lot of these paintings, you know these garden paintings represented sort of a larger genre, how oftentimes there are many versions of more or less the same composition. And because that's something that, that I've not seen represented or discussed in exhibitions or, or even scholarship in as explicit a way as it should be, because it's, it's such a integral feature to how art making, how, how, how painting worked in the 17th and 18th century in South Asia. Um, in in a sense, even though obviously painters in the in the West also often created multiple versions of the same theme, uh, it's still with our sort of idea of of, of sort of individual genius. It, it sort of it, I think it tends to throw people. It tends to throw people and and sort of they don't know how to feel about the fact that multiple artists created basically the same painting. So this seemed like a great opportunity to highlight that. So we, uh, after picking our initial paintings, um, you know, I sort of had this idea of like, okay, let's do a curate a group for each painting of paintings that are variations on the same theme that are sort of part of the same genre to varying degrees. Uh, and that through that also highlight the same olfactory elements to sort of show how these are, are in relation to each other. So that's sort of how we went about picking the the paintings while i had had the idea that okay i think that some of these paintings from this period of art history needs to be translated um you know be it to perfume or tea or incense or soap or whatever um the i really left it to the historian to anchor those ideas to the specifics of that period so um in you know he picked uh, five main paintings, and then there are a cluster of paintings accompanying each chapter. Uh, and, it, and it is really in that kind of back and forth process that I just had more questions. So why did you pick this painting of the Rose Garden and not this painting of the Rose Garden? And how, wait, are you telling me that, you know, this is a Mughal painting of two men sniffing a narcissus, and then this is a Rajput painting with exactly the same composition with the two men sniffing narcissus? So hang on a second. So the Mughal and the Rajput courts were producing exactly the same compositions with like minor details so that means did they have the same garden idea did they have the same olfactory um uh landscape were there were there more commonalities um than the things that sort of kept them apart and like i was like i am still trying to wrap my head around it you know because just last month i asked him oh hang on a second so the Mughals were also growing kevra and bananas together, just like it's shown in the Rajput paintings. Can you find me to Mughal, like, can you find me some Mughal paintings where that is illustrated? And then he finds them. <laughs> uh, and I feel we need to show and tell. We need to continuously insist that it's one garden idea. No, and this, this is an interesting thing, because this also sort of 
this is helpful for me in a sense because it keeps bringing me back to to what might actually be audience questions because I'm so so deep in the weeds essentially at this point with this material uh, and especially when I'm not looking at questions of of you know power or religious authority or things like that when I'm looking at the sort of material culture where that's usually not even a question I think about like to me you know this is all early modern Indian gardening um, you know early modern North Indian gardening the South can sometimes be a little bit different but so like it it doesn't even like most of the time I don't even think of it being Mughal versus Rajput like you know obviously in terms of in terms of painting styles and so on I I'm very aware of the differences uh, I mean in my day job I'm an art librarian so I kind of you know I do a lot of a lot of image cataloging so there these things things really matter but when I'm looking at the um, at a horticultural content, the botanical content, at the the references to to um, gardening practice and the sort of idea of what the garden should be, um, my default is just to assume that it's it's a shared material culture, and to me that is a given. But obviously, given where we are now in in the larger public perception that's that's hardly always the case. So so this is often a very helpful reminder to like oh you know, the question of a, of a general audience might be very different from where I am at when, when, when I'm looking at Absolutely. these things. Absolutely. There's also a political consideration because where these questions are coming up for me, uh, I, because I live in India and I am, you know, I encounter sometimes in, in the process of pitching proposals and whatnot to, you know, once in a while, a billionaire might see my proposal and their minions might communicate to me that, no, we, we like this concept, but can you not focus on Mughal? Can you give us Indian culture? Can you give us Indian paintings? And that really baffles me. There is no Indian, there is no North Indian culture without Mughal anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to inform you. All all your cultural forms are informed by Mughal history. Yeah, that but that that is indeed very political nowadays. The, of course, this differentiation it just, between it just it just drives and, me and it just drives me up the wall. I know, I know. I I, I agree. I'm the same. It's, again, it's... as a critic who's thinking about the public and writing in public interest for the public good, uh, I'm thinking. Hang on a second. So already we do not have strong public cultural structures we do not have strong or any cultural funding so it's really in the hands of these billionaires who have there's a corporate capture on the culture here and so now they're going to dictate to us what is indian and what is not indian what is foreign really they're they're going to be the ones deciding what our culture looks like in the next 50 years or so that is, frankly, that is the subversive aspect of Bhage Hind because we look at both Mughal and Rajput paintings. We are, um, you know, pretty much melding the two and proving our point that they are one and the same. They have the same style. Yeah. That is, that is, that is actually a very important point, I think. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite audio platform and give a rating. Add a comment and share on social media to help grow the audience and the community. To support the initiative, buy the host a coffee via the link under the episode. And now, back to the interview. In the exhibition, you, you chose five scents, which are Rose, Narcissus, Smoke, Iris and Kevra. Why did you choose those five scents in particular? Uh, so I left those choices to uh, Nicholas. I was like, you're the expert, you're the historian, you pick the plants, you pick the paintings, and you just mm -hmm. tell me, you just point out the olfactive prompts to me. So that that was our agreement. Uh, but then, uh, so this was in the summer of 2021, and I was also researching his work. I was reading everything that he had written, um, you know, curiosity, but also I got a lot of pleasure from reading his text. Um, and sometimes I still revisit them and I'm like, oh, I didn't think about it that time, but now I can see how that makes sense to me. So he had actually written a very interesting uh, essay on, our, was it Avadi Architecture for Journal 18? Avadi Garden, Avadi, you know, uh, Garden Architecture. And I just, I don't think I paid attention to the essay as much as I did to uh, the paintings that he had selected to accompany uh, his arguments and points and his, his Matnavian 
the poetry that he was discussing um and they were just filled with all of these like you know the, the servants in the in the king's garden are like light in the process of lighting uh, a match to mm-hmm. the ex- the the explosive firecracker thingy um and you know the the details on the sparklers like each clearly like i am an artist right uh, so i look at how these paintings are made and i imagine all oh, the artists took so much time like their perception of of time was very different back in those days they they dotted each um you know the yellow for each kind of you know sparkler uh, mm-hmm. uh, explosion and how fascinating is that and oh as a perfumer of course these are not abstract concepts so i do yeah. Uh, chemical aroma, chemical accords that can simulate that scent of uh, smoke and gunpowder and firecrackers. Um, and I thought, oh, how curious! You know, like the the rose garden, the painting of the rose garden, the Kevra, the iris. Like these are very obvious choices to make. Uh, but what about experiencing the garden at night time and on a night of celebration? Right. So could I construct a perfume accord that was structured in a way where um, you smell the smoke, you get a hit of this kind of very pleasant uh, gunpowdery kind of wood, almost kind of like a barbecue note that then clears and then you smell all of the night blooming flowers. So tuberose, jasmine, honeysuckle. So the the idea of the perfume actually came before he could even pick a painting, and I said, "Please make one with with smoke in it, with firecrackers in it." And he very sweetly, yeah, you know, it was it was doubly helpful because a I mean, thought that was a great idea because I I could sort of, you know, that smell of of smoke that of and especially of the firecracker smoke is is so evocative, um, and it, and it ended up turning out out, out great, like. To this day, I still think like all all the perfumes are, I think, incredibly like intricate expressions of of what's in the paintings. They all worked out, you know, very well. But that one, I think, is still the most immediately impressive because I think you just immediately get hit by by that experience. Like, and I think it requires less sort of experiential references. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's the one that's perhaps also the most accessible. But also this was very helpful in a sense because this really helped propel this idea of the of the painting clusters that that sort of show um, the the repetition of the motifs because for for whatever reason um, for the sort of nighttime fireworks scenes there is a particularly rich number of of a virtually identical composition yeah. being reworked sort of for multiple contexts including. I think one of our favorites, at least one of my favorites, where the painting that we used as the as the main painting for our smoke section, you know, there are multiple other versions of it. Uh, and it's this exact same composition of women on the terrace with some some important person. Sometimes it's the, the you know, so the head of the household. Sometimes it's a prince sitting sort of opposite them. And then, you know, they're lighting sparkles and there's fireworks in the background. And, you know, and the interesting thing is that the 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 dignitary the the main person changes each time so it changes between you know sort of a fictitious king to a named mughal prince yes. to in one version radha and krishna so it really you know it was it was particular particularly poignant example of that uh the way these compositions and these motifs um get reworked over and over again in in a way that's that's not the necessarily, you know, not just derivative, but actually meaningful and significant. And for the audience, because we, we're talking a lot uh, about uh, sense, of course, are these scents that you've created uh, for the exhibition still available for the audience that would want to experience them? Uh, they are available, but like I only made about 50 ml concentrate of each. The incense uh, that represents each painting, each of the five paintings, that's available and accessible and very kind of reasonably priced. So I do want people to have some tangible um, reference and context to the project as they experience it. And incense is the easiest you know, easiest to ship. Fantastic. So for the audience, of course, I will put the link to the website uh, under the episode, as always. And if you want to 
purchase uh, some of those scents and incense and so on, you can go to uh, this website and click on exit via gift shop. If you scroll down to the end, you have a form you can order from there. One of the aim of this project of the Garden of India is to, to open the field to non-academic audiences and to open the field to people in general who do not have access to museums and publications such as exhibition catalogues that are usually really pricey. In your opinion, both of you, of course, and based on your different experiences and different backgrounds, what can we do to make art and history um, more accessible outside the closed academic and erudite circles? I don't have, a, have one singular solution to it or, or answer. Um, I think projects like ours um, hopefully are a helpful contribution to that in terms of, you know, not just obviously providing something new and something engaging, something interesting, but also, um, you know, providing a nexus of various avenues of exploration, various things that that might be of interest to, to different people. And this is sort of an idea I keep coming back to, because even with my dissertation, when people sort of actually ask me, you know, uh, how do I see my dissertation fitting in? Um, my, my answer has always been, well, I hope that obviously I'm really, really interested uh, in the history of gardens and, and, gar and horticultural knowledge. But what I'm hoping is that because it's this material practice, um, because it's a, something that is not just a theoretical, it, it's not about academic theory and it's not about a theoretical exploration of, of power or, or so on, or at least not exclusively, it touches on those things, but it also by being rooted in a material practice touches on all of these other things and all these other disciplines that it can serve as a, um, that it can serve sort of as a nexus, as a starting point for people to explore in different directions. Um, obviously in that case, that was sort of, you know, in the context of an academic, um, of an academic work. So I was sort of thinking in the context of academia, well, I hope that even that other people researching other scholars, other students, can go off of this and use it as a blueprint or use it as a starting point to explore things that they're interested in. So I'm hoping that this being much more in the public sphere is works in a similar way where um, it, it creates perhaps a model or just a starting point. And this is also why we put, try to put as many resources and references into it as we can of, of all sorts. Um, it, you know, it can people to inspire to learn more or do more creatively, intellectually, be it sort of passive research, be it passive learning or active, like, oh, you know, maybe I will, I want to creatively explore the subject matter through, through a practice of some sort, um, that it can, you know, that it can really sort of be a, be a model or a starting point for that. That's sort of my, my idealistic hope. Um, beyond that, in the sort of, sort of larger sphere of things, um, Assuming internet access, decent internet access, which is obviously also, um, you know, a privilege of some sort, uh, there are there are tremendous resources nowadays, which we certainly rely on heavily. You know, in in being able to do this work remotely, uh, university databases, museum databases, bases. There is so much out there in the public sphere. Um, what I do in my day job, um, you know, a lot of stuff. Unfortunately, because of copyright, we are required to keep restricted essentially to, to university uh, affiliates. Uh, but we try to put as much as possible um, of the materials that, that we have in, in the public domain to make them accessible to anyone. Theoretically, the access is there, but usage um, and awareness is still very low. So something that I think we really need to uh work on is user friendliness is um accessibility not in, in the sense of not just that it's there but that it's you know people can actually find it that people can navigate it um that people have an idea of what it is um i think for me the big question of how to democratize access uh to materials um, certainly not the only one, but one big one is that there's already so much stuff that's theoretically available digitally, theoretically in, in the public domain, but you really need to kind of need sort of a researcher's disposition and, um, and 
training and also the time to actually get there. Um, and I, since that sort of comes somewhat naturally to me and I enjoy that process, it, I like, I feel like all attempts to fix that, to make things more readily available, are just creating yet another database that, that you may or may not know about. Like, how do we improve access to, to that? Yeah. And even people with even less yes. sort of educational privilege than us. Right. I mean, thankfully I have you. So I just ask you, find me. <laughs> um, but it is actually a very frustrating uh, issue for me to actually do a search on my own. Um, I was on one, I've been on one museum site recently, and I typed Mughal and everything like Rajput paintings show up. Where are the Mughal folios? And then I key in Rajput and, and then just uh, in even slimmer margin of those actual Rajput. So like, what am I supposed to put? Rajput, Meva, Rajasthan. What do I put? Uh, that is a separate issue. The other issue that I have bumped up against is uh, particularly, you know, junior career making, you know, academics in this kind of downward mobile academia sphere, trying to make their way up, who have vested themselves in behaving like gatekeepers. And I just don't understand that. Like, sorry, I'm being exploited. You're being exploited. We're all being exploited here. So what is your priority to, you know, uh, disable access to information to say, well, this is not for you. <laughs> and and museums have done that, you know, and I, I just don't get it. Um, and my only conclusion, particularly with public, like taxpayer funded museums behaving this way, controlling, they, they really do want to control uh, the way that this discourse is built and by whom. So they will make an effort to reach a certain type of public, right? But it's it's not someone like me who comes with the vocabulary and the language and the skills and the, and the credentials to ask very pointed questions, you know? Um, so th that is that is when I kind of experience, you know, like real, real gatekeeping, like real kind of, you know, the door has been shut. <laughs> you cannot write to us again. <laughs> and it's not about me. It's not about my position as a critic. It's really, it's, it's just how institutions behave. They are vested in controlling the flow of knowledge and, you know, controlling who engages with it. I, I will I will say from just one few from inside a, a very a, you know as I said a, a little subset of an institution where um, where the people in my immediate vicinity and myself are actually invested in in getting the material out to people uh, as much as we can um, at you know is that like with with the with the sort of you know how do you find something in a particular database. The secret is that sometimes we don't know. <laughs> um, now, you know, as someone who's relatively recently on the inside of this, I was surprised to discover this as well. But like, we actually, we do a very, like, we try to do a very fine-tuned job in, in my department of, of tagging things. Yeah. Um, and this is actually something we've been historically at odds on with some other departments of the same library system who are like, you're putting... You're putting way too much resources into like fine tuning uh, your your tagging um, and you know your keywords and whatnot. Like just just upload the stuff. Who cares? Who can find it? Sort of was there. Like just just work for volume. You guys are wasting resources. Um, so we do that, <laughs> and then the actual search interface that it it, it goes into sometimes doesn't pick it up and there's literally situations that we've we've done like you know sort of case studies where you can see on on the back end like it is tagged with these things which and then we search mm -hmm. for these things and it doesn't show up and you search for something else that you know has some other overlap with it and it does show up or you know it's tagged with the thing so it should show up in a search but it only shows up if you search for the exact title um so not not to make excuses there is obviously a lot of human error but but th there's also um the fact that um a lot of the actual technical interfaces the actual code for the the program supporting a lot of of museum and library databases are not good and it's um 
uh, it's often quite a tug of war between the companies developing these and the institutions using them to get them to do what you want them to do. Yeah, I think, well, the thing that we need to keep in mind is that the technology of museum databases is kind of fairly new, even 10 years 15 years ago, I know when I started my education, there were very little online databases. Uh, now, obviously, this becomes more and more uh, common, and it's a great thing, but it hasn't been a long time since that technology appeared. So I think, yeah, for, for when it comes to, to search uh, on websites and keywords, I think uh, collectively we need to be patient. Even languages. So when I was putting together uh, uh, the objects gallery of Bhadia Hind, I knew that I had seen some carpets or objects at the mark and at the Kunsthistorisches, but like how to find them. So luckily, the, the friend, my friend is, was at the time the uh, collections uh, curator uh, at the mark, and he would just send me the links. And he said, look, these databases, the, the websites are uh, built in German language and then exactly yeah thing is being translated when you're searching for it so you can't find it i'm like okay yeah so my priority so my priority in order to do better like searches is to just make more friends <laughs> <laughs> that's a good approach but it's a very challenging task i would say to build a database and a lot goes into it um but i think it will it will get better the, the difficulty for me is for people who have no prior knowledge or who are just on a website, you know, a, a, a museum website just because they have time to kill, uh, it's for them to know what they're looking at. And some museums are increasingly making the effort to describe and to relate objects to other. But again, that is a work in progress. And that is for me... Mm -hmm the most important thing I think for true um, accessibility is to really have a comprehensive description of the object and related or uh, uh, the object related to it and in a historical context but that obviously requires a lot of resources human resources and financial resources but this is where I think we can really improve and really make things accessible for someone who just has access to the internet, goes on a museum website and actually learn something and discover something. So yeah, that's my that's my view on accessibility. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but actually in Bagahin we bring all of these uh, museum resources very easily and accessibly on the yeah. site. And yeah. so if anyone who wants to go down a rabbit hole. Uh, they can follow the, the music and that opens to a YouTube link. They can click on the museum link and actually go and zoom in on the uh, painting properly. Uh, and then they can find similar other paintings. And so I think, you know, I think our project is um, is an amazing gateway to art history. It's a nice. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. I think, <laughs> and I think that's, it. again, sort of the idea of, of it being a nexus that that I also I think I guess that's an, another thing that I'm sort of thinking of bridging the the gap between the the academic and non-academic but also within academia is that you know I for me that's also sort of the default model of how um you know how re academic work and and the interface between academic work and and sort of public scholarship should be in general where um you should really try to make your your connections your your sources, but in the traditional sense, but also uh, any sort of connections that that you're signposting as as accessible, as user friendly, you know, as possible. Again, I I enjoy going down research rabbit holes, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's also some you know quite often I come up against things where you know I find something I'm like okay, the most valuable thing about this for me is this reference to something else that speaks to the thing that yeah. I'm interested in. Um, it would be really helpful if instead of just saying, you know, like giving me half of the citation, you'd given me the full citation <laughs> or you'd given me the link. Yeah. Why are you not doing that? So we, from the get-go, have tried to always go the whole way and give, you know, and, and make the connection as easy and, as possible. Uh, 
Yeah. I'll say I'll add one more thing, and Nicholas, you correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think that this is the first time ever in the history of exhibition making that these paintings, that Mokul and Rajput paintings, have been paired with sound, with poetry, the like 18th century Urdu poetry and their translations, um, with uh, perfume and flavor and like the actual plant photos. The, you know, mm -hmm. what the yeah. flower actually looks like. Um, you know, even within the perfumery industry, a lot of sometimes, you know, somebody will be called out on social media for saying, you're saying that this is a bergamot fruit. It is not a bergamot fruit. How can you put the wrong misleading image of this fruit to sell your <laughs> bergamot perfume? It's the wrong citrus fruit. Um, so I feel like I, I feel like I do a fair amount of that on social media. I'm like that's not <laughs> the right time. And I always feel like such a malcontent. I always feel like I'm sort of you know the the cranky like old man you know yelling from his porch and i don't mean it that way at all like i the last thing i want to do is like chide people or call them out but i'm just like like you know you could correct it like let's can we identify things correctly like i know in the individual case it doesn't it probably doesn't matter very much but like it's just it, you know i feel like i feel like it, it's nice for everyone when they actually know what they're looking at yes absolutely what are your hopes for the future of Paris-Ind? What do you want to do with the exhibition now? <laughs> I don't really know. Um, the project needs its artist and its gardener, and we are just letting the garden rest. Um, and what I'm doing is that I am developing the catalog section, uh, so commissioning really nice really nice people uh, to write uh, non-academic essays, you know, max 2,000 words, lots of nice images, and really break the mold of academic writing. Because as I said to Nicholas, I'm your audience. You know, it's people like me who want, who are curious, uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned, and willing to engage. And so that's the, the bit that I'm developing this year. Um, I do, I don't know, I, I, you know, this idea for, everybody keeps telling me, oh, you should be putting together a book. And I'm like, mm, why? Why? The book doesn't make any money. And you enter into a power dynamic with the publisher. Um, and so it, then it's not your book anymore. And the kind of book I really want is so impossible, pretty much like the project itself. Like, you know, I want a smell and pop-up book full of joy and pleasure and you know, the historian can pick the paintings and the scratch and sniff stickers can come in from somewhere else. I don't know. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, I'm continuing my exploration with these um, very beautiful uh, concepts and ideas and experiences. And I'm, I'm painting pop-ups, you know, I'm painting them in pop-up form. And because uh, a lot of these, particularly the, the Rajput paintings are painted from multiple perspectives. And uh, a lot of them do look like they could be pop-ups. I like this idea now of um, taking the composition of the painting, breaking it apart, uh, like just delineating the, the composition. So I only pick the botanical um, details. So the banana tree, the, um, the camera, uh, detail that kind of comes in the forefront and then we paint them and then make them stand as pop-ups and then we arrange them. Uh, so mm -hmm. that is not the human figures. You're really looking at the garden. You're really looking at the olfactory prompts. And then that comes with the perfume. It comes with the incense. It comes with the soap and perhaps an edible perfume. So you have a multidimensional art installation, uh, which I call a playset. Because, you know, it's all about playing. I, I think you're, I don't know, I think you're selling yourself short there a little bit because she's been sending me updates on on the pop-up, you know, explorations and they are pretty phenomenal. Like, I think, for example, you know, they would make a phenomenal artist book. Like one of, one of my one of my colleagues at the library, her one of her sub-areas within with, is collecting artist book for, artist book for the collections. And like, you know, a lot of them are really, really cool, but... There are also ones that, you know, arguably perhaps I just don't get, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that really pale in comparison, um, in comparison to to 
you know, these explorations of yours just of the last couple of weeks. Um, so there's so many, not that you have to do that, but there's so many things that, so many that, things that you, can, you do, yeah. can create. Yeah. All right. Last question. Maybe the hardest for last. Um, what is your favorite painting in the exhibition? Uh, the Narcissus painting, but also the, the painting, but also it's perfume translation. Um which I suspect is also Nicholas's favorite. The the painting is my favorite, uh, you know, because it's it's like it's so beautiful, but it's also kind of subversive. Uh, I think because people don't see how much like romantic slash sexual tension I think there is in it. So I love talking about that. Um, and the flowers are really they're tiny but beautifully rendered. Um, it's you know it's just very beautiful and has all these layers of meaning. For the perfume, I would say number four, the the iris one, because that has a party at one point, because I went through that the first time she sent me a sample, I went through that one the fastest. <laughs> and I think your your commentary was like, oh, you you know, you you don't even know it, but you have very fancy taste or very expensive taste. Because <laughs> that one is very is very rich. You know, it has the it has the the iris, um the iris sort of violet note, and then uh, you know, the these the sort of rich layers of citrus and 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 conifers and um it's very yeah it's very luxurious good okay and with that barty and nicolas thank you so much for coming on the episode of the art informant it was really fun to have you both and really informative and really inspiring actually so thank you so much really appreciate thank it you so much thank you Thank you for listening to The Art Informant. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite audio platform, add a rating and share around you to grow the community. Do not forget to follow The Art Informant on Instagram to receive all the podcast updates and I will see you in the next episode.